Volume Three, Chapter Fifteen of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume Three, Chapter Fifteen. For human bless and woe in the frail thread of human life are all so closely twined that till the shears of fate the texture shred, the close succession cannot be disjoined. Nor dare we from our hour judge that which comes behind. Sir Walter Scott Di had seen her father and Archie off on their journey to Brighton, and, having arranged to replace her brother in three days' time, was surprised when a hasty note, the morning after their departure, informed her that Archie had been recalled to London on business, and that she must go to her father at once. Mrs. Courtney was incensed. Archie had shirked before, and now he had shirked again. But Colonel Tempest remained in far too precarious a condition for her to refuse to allow her granddaughter to go, as she would certainly otherwise have done. So Di went off the morning after the speaker's party. She had told Mrs. Courtney that she had met John there. "'In one way I am glad to have met him,' she said firmly, her proud lip quivering. "'Any uncertainty I may have been weak enough to feel is at an end, and it was time the end should come.' For in spite of all you said, I had a lingering idea that if we met, and now we have met, and he's evidently no wish to see me again. Mrs. Courtney looked fixedly at the beautiful pallid face, and wondered that she'd ever wished to die had a heart. This pain will pass, she said gently. You have always believed me, Di. Believe me now. Take courage and wait. You've had an untroubled life till now. That has passed. Trouble has come. It is part of life. It will pass, too. Not the feeling, perhaps, but the suffering. "'Good-bye, my child,' she said a little later, kissing the girl's cold cheek with a tenderness which Jodai was powerless to return. "'Take care of yourself. Go out every day. The sea air will do you good. And tell your father I cannot spare you more than a fortnight.' Di would have given anything to show her grandmother that she was thankful. Oh, how thankful in this grey world, for her sympathy and love! But she had no words. She kissed Mrs. Courtney, and went down to the cab. Mrs. Courtney remained motionless until she heard it drive away. Then she let two tears run down from below her spectacles, and wiped them away. No more followed them. The old cannot give way like the young. Mrs. Courtney had once said that nothing had power to touch her very nearly, but she was still vulnerable on one point. Her old heart, warm with so many troubles, ached for her granddaughter. Thank God, she said to herself, that in the next world there will be neither marrying nor giving in marriage. Perhaps God Almighty sees it's a mistake. Di found Colonel Tempest wrapped up in a duvet in an armchair by the window of his sitting-room, in a state of equal indignation against his children for deserting him, and against the rain for blurring the sea-view from the window. With his nurse, it is hardly necessary to add, he was not on speaking terms, a fact which seemed to cause that patient, apathetic person very little annoyance, she being, as she told Di, accustomed to gentlemen. Dyth soothed him as best she could, took his tray from the nurse at the door so that he might be spared as much as possible the sight of the most hideous woman in the world, rang for lights, and drew a curtain before the untactful rain, while he disclaimed alternately on the enormity of Archie's behaviour 
and on the callousness of Mrs. Courtney in endeavouring to keep his daughter, his only daughter, away from him. Colonel Tempest and Archie detested Mrs. Courtney. However much the father and son might disagree and bicker on most subjects, they could always sing a little duet together in perfect harmony about her. Colonel Tempest began a feeble solo on that theme to die when he had finished with Archie. But die visibly froze, and somehow the subject, often as it was started, always dropped. Die, as Colonel Tempest frequently informed her, did not care to hear the truth about her grandmother. If she knew all that he did about her, and what her behaviour had been to him, she would not be so fond of her as she evidently was. Earlier in his illness, Di had been obliged to exercise patience with her father, but she needed none now. That is the one small compensation for deep trouble. It numbs the power of feeling small irritations. It is when it begins to lift somewhat that the small irritations fit themselves out with new stings. Di had not reached that stage yet. The doctor, who came daily to see her father, looked narrowly at her, and ordered her to go out of doors as much as possible, in wet weather or fine. "'I sometimes take a little nap after luncheon,' said Colonel Tempest with dignity. "'You might go out then, Di.' "'Miss Tempest will in any case go out morning and afternoon,' said the doctor, with decision. Colonel Tempest had before had his doubts whether the doctor understood his case, but now they were confirmed. He wished to change doctors, and a painful scene ensued between him and Di, in the course of which a hole was kicked in the duvet and a cup of broth was upset.' But it is an ascertained fact that women are not amenable to reason. Di sewed up the hole in the duvet, rubbed the carpet, and remained, as Colonel Tempest hysterically informed her, as obstinate as her mother before her. On the second morning after her arrival at Brighton, she was sitting with Colonel Tempest, reading the papers to him, when the waiter brought in the letters. There were none for her, two for her father. One was a foreign letter with a blue French stamp. She took them to him where he lay on the sofa. Colonel Tempest looked at them. Uh, "'Nothing from Archie again,' he said. "'He doesn't care even to write and ask whether I'm alive or dead.' "'Archie is not a good hand at writing,' said I, echoing, for the sake of saying something, the time-honoured masculine plea for exemption from the tedium of domestic correspondence. "'This is John's hand,' said Colonel Tempest. "'A Paris postmark? How these rich men do rush about!' Di had actually not known it was John's writing. She had never seen it, to her knowledge, but nevertheless it appeared to her extraordinary that she had not at once divined that it was his. She was not anxious to hear her father's comments on John's letter, or the threadbare remark, sacred to the poor relation, that when the rich one was sitting down to draw a cheque he might just as well have written it for double the amount. He would never have known the difference. The poor relation always knows exactly how much the rich one can afford to give, so Di told her father she was going out, and left the room. It stung her, as she laced her boots, to think that John had probably sent another cheque to cover their expenses at the hotel, and that the fried soles and semolina pudding which she had ordered for luncheon would be paid for by him. It exasperated her still more to know that whatever John sent, Colonel Tempest would have pronounced it to be me. Before she had finished lacing her boots, however, the sitting-room door was opened, and Di heard her father calling wildly to her. Colonel Tempest was not allowed to move except with great precaution, 
owing to the slow healing of the obstinate internal injury caused by that unlucky pistol-shot. She rushed headlong downstairs. "'Father!' she cried, horrified to find him standing on the landing. "'Father! Come back at once!' And she put her arms round him and supported him back to the sofa. He was trembling from head to foot. She saw that something had happened, but he was not in a state to be questioned. She administered what restorative she had at hand, and presently the constantly moving lips got out the words, "'Read it!' and Colonel Tempest pointed to the letter on the floor. "'Read it!' repeated Colonel Tempest, lying back on his cushions, and recovering from his momentary collapse. "'Read it!' Di picked up the letter and sat down by the window. She was suddenly too tired to stand. Her father was talking wildly, but she did not hear him. He was calling to her to read it aloud, but she did not hear him. She saw only John's strong, small handwriting. It was a business letter, couched in the most matter-of-fact terms. John stated his case, expressed a formal regret that the facts he mentioned had not come to light at Mr. Tempest's death, mentioned that the accumulation of income during his minority had fortunately remained untouched, that he desired his lawyer to communicate with Colonel Tempest, and signed himself John Fane. He had written the word Tempest, and had then struck it through. Di pressed her forehead against the glass on which the rain was beating. Was the emotion which was shattering her joy, or sorrow, or, or both? She knew it was joy. In a lightning flash of comprehension she realised that it was this awful calamity which had kept John silent, which had held him back from coming to her, from asking her to marry him. He loved her still. Love, dead and buried, had risen out of his grave. The impossible had happened. John loved her still. "'I cannot bear it,' she said. And for a moment the long yellow waves and her father's impatient voice, and even John's letter, were alike blotted out, unheard. Colonel Tempest considered Di's apathy, after she had read the letter, unfeeling and unsympathetic in the extreme, and he did not hesitate to tell her so. When she presently turned her averted face towards him, he was already off on another tack, his excitement, which seemed to increase rather than diminish, tossing him as a wave tosses a spar. Twenty years,' he said tremulously. "'Think of it, Di, not that you seem to care. Twenty years have I toiled and moiled in poverty. Twenty years have I and my children been ground down while that nameless interloper has spent our money right and left. Oh, my God, I've got it at last! I've got my own at last!' "'But who will give me back those twenty years?' And Colonel Tempest's voice broke into a sob. Other consequences of that letter began to dawn on Di's awakening consciousness. "'Then John,' she said, bewildered, "'Oh, Father, what will become of John?' "'John,' said Colonel Tempest bitterly, "'is now just where I was twenty years ago, disinherited, penniless. "'He has kept me out all these years.' and now at last Providence gives me my own. Is it to be hoped that Providence is not really responsible for all the shady transactions for which we offer up our best thanks? I dare say he is put by, continued Colonel Tempest. He's had time enough. You have not read the letter carefully, said Di. He only discovered all this less than three months ago, and you have been ill for more than two. Colonel Tempest did not hear her. He had ceased for the last twenty years to hear anything he did not want to. 
Fifty thousand a year, he went on, not a penny less. And the new river shares have gone up since Jack's day. And there was a large sum which rolled up during the minority. John's right there. There must be over a hundred thousand. You shall have that, die. Archie will kick, but you shall have it. Eight thousand pounds John settled on you a year ago. That was the amount of his generosity to my poor girl. You shall not have a penny less than a hundred thousand. Not during my lifetime, of course, but, but, but when I die, he added hastily. Die could articulate nothing. I shall pay my own debts and Archie's in a moment, he continued, not noticing whether she answered or not. If you want a new gown, Di, you may send the bill to me. I don't believe I owe a thousand, and Archie not so much, poor lad, though John was always putting a long face over his debts. How deuce me John was from first to last. Well, do as you will be done by. I'll do for him alone what he thought enough for the two of you. I'll never give him cause to say I'm close-fisted. He shall have your eight thousand, and he shall have three hundred a year, the same that he allowed Archie as well. He won't take it. Won't take it? said Colonel Tempest contemptuously. That's all you know about the world, Di. I tell you he'll have to take it. I tell you he has not a sixpence in the world at this moment, to say nothing of owing me twenty years' income. Colonel Tempest rambled on of how Archie should leave the army and live at Overley, of how Di should live there too, and Mrs. Courtney might go to the devil. Presently he fell to wondering what state the shooting was in, and how many pheasants John was breeding at that moment. Every instant it became more unbearable, till at last Di sent for the nurse, made an excuse of posting her letters, and slipped out of the room. She went out to her old friends, the Yellow Waves, and, too exhausted to walk, sat down under the lee of one of the high wooden rivets between which the sea licks the pebbly shore into grooves. Gradually the tension of her mind relaxed. I sat and watched the waves until they washed away the high invalid voice vibrating in some acute recess of her brain. Washed away the hideous thought that they were rich because John was penniless and dishonoured. Washed away everything, except the one fact that his silence was accounted for, and that he loved her after all. Di looked out across the rain-trodden sea. If it was raining, she did not know it. What did anything in this wide world matter so long as John loved her? Poverty was nothing. Marriage was nothing either. What did it matter if they could not marry, so long as they loved each other? Once in a lifetime it is vouchsafed alike to the worldly and to the pure, to the earnest and to the frivolous, to discern that vision, which has been ever life's greatest reality or life's greatest illusion, according to the character of the beholder, that to love and to be loved is enough. A wet glint came across the sea, exquisite and evanescent as the gleam across Di's heart. It is enough, said Di, and her soul was flooded with a solemn joy a thousand times deeper than when she had first discovered her love for John and his for her, and a brilliant future was before her. Sorrow with his pick minds the heart, but he is a cunning workman. He deepens the channels whereby happiness may enter, and hollows out new chambers for joy to abide in when he is gone. End of Volume 3, Chapter 15